The Devil Within, the hit true crime podcast, is back with a terrifying journey into the mind of a madman. In the 1970s, New York City had it all. Hip-hop, punk rock, and the son of Sam. The Devil Within, a season in hell, is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Progressive protects more than just your home and car. You could save when you bundle your motorcycles, ATVs, boats, and RVs. Doesn't that sound good? Like the sound of your boat cruising along the intercoastal. And there's the sound of the prop hitting a really big rock. And now the sound of waves because the engine stopped. But you know what does sound good? You're covered with Progressive. So bundle all your vehicles and home in one place and save with the multi-policy discount. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. This is one of those cases that sits heavy on my chest and frustrates the hell out of me. Because it could have been you or me or any of us. A 19-year-old college freshman leaves an off-campus party and heads to her dorm, but never makes it. And while there's one person in particular who's grabbed the attention of investigators, he slipped out of their grasp time and time again. Is he responsible? We don't know. But recent efforts, like as recent as March 2021 recent, prove that investigators aren't giving up. And as much as we want to protect our victims, we also want to protect those who are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. This suspect is just that, a suspect. So while I will be using his name, because he is tied to Kristen's story, I hope we can remain open-minded. You bring up such an important point, and this is a really thoughtful statement before the story, because if you think about Elizabeth Smart's case, Mm -hmm. if listeners remember, they thought at one point that it was Richard Ricci or Ricci. Right. And it wasn't. And they put that man through hell, rightfully so, because we needed to find Elizabeth. However, it can and does happen that somebody looks really suspicious and they're not. So just as it's important to never victim blame, it's also to remember that people are innocent until they're charged and proven guilty in a court of law. Absolutely. So without further ado, this is the disappearance of Kristen Smart. Born on February 20th, 1977 in Augsburg, Germany, Kristen Denise Smart was the oldest of Stan and Denise Smart's three children, Kristen, Matt, and Lindsay. She was a daddy's girl who was friendly, generous, and athletic. And as a teen, she shot up 
to six feet, one inch tall with long legs and long arms that gave her the perfect physique for her competitive swimming career. The family relocated to Stockton, California. And for our non-California native listeners, that's in Central California. And it's in Stockton that Kristen's love for the sea breeze and her adventurous spirit blossomed. She had a zest for life and loved to travel. Hawaii and South America were some of her notable destinations because she was always hoping to be by the beach. In fact, during our conversation earlier, Paige, you mentioned that she was a lifeguard in Hawaii. Right. Kristen really had a wanderlust for life. Before she had even started college at Cal Poly, she had traveled the world as an exchange student in Venezuela and attended programs in London, but also was a lifeguard in Hawaii. So she really did have a wanderlust for life. I should also rewind for a quick tangent that Kristen Smart and at the top of the episode, me talking about Elizabeth Smart, as far as we know, they are not related and neither are their cases. It is a coincidence that I was connecting Elizabeth Smart and Kristen Smart's case. So I just want to leave that there. But let's get back to Kristen Smart that, yes, she just had a wanderlust for travel and really had a bit of a free spirit about her. Absolutely. In fact, her mother, Denise, said that if Kristen had had her way, she would have attended college in the Caribbean. And who could blame her, right? I would love to wear a bikini in between classes and, you know, go to the beach. But she ended up deciding to go to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo to be close to family and her hometown. And I want to clarify that she was a lot closer than than the Caribbean would have been, but she was still about 200 miles away from them. That's about right. So close enough to get your distance, but also close enough to be able to drive home, which, you know, that's a win-win. Exactly. And actually her mom is the one who was really into the idea of her attending Cal Poly. It is a great school. And Kristen struggled in the beginning, but at the end of the day with her free spirit, she made it work. She made friends. And as we're going to hear, she was active on the campus and with her social group. Totally. And just going back to that struggle at the beginning of her college career, she did originally enroll as an architecture major because she loved to draw. But she switched majors immediately when she realized that her real dream was to travel the world as a reporter and to be the next Joan London. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. 
that fits Kristen so much better from what we've learned in our Mm -hmm. research. Absolutely. And unfortunately, since we're telling her story on the murder diaries, I'm sure you guessed that she was never able to get to do that. Kristen went by a number of nicknames, and I feel like this just really highlights what a fun personality she had. And some of the names were Marisol, Trixie, Skritter, that's my favorite, and Kiana. But on Friday, May 24th, 1996, which was Memorial Day weekend, she was answering to the name of Roxy with an X. Kristen began her three-day weekend with a phone call to her family, and they didn't answer, so she left a voicemail. This would be the last communication she ever had with her family. And in that voicemail, she told them, good news, good news. I'll call on Sunday. She actually had a longstanding phone date with her mom on Sunday, so it wasn't unusual for her to say, hey, I'll update you on whatever's going on on Sunday. I feel like this is so typical of the 90s too, right? You really did have to pre-plan that kind of stuff a little bit more often. Right. Nobody nobody really had cell phones at the ready always, or if they did, they were very expensive with very minimal minutes. So not everybody was always accessible and it was very normal to, sure, leave a, a voice message or as we used to call them, a message on the answering machine mm-hmm. and then touch base when you had something pre-planned like your Sunday call with your mom. It's very typical 90s family connection. I don't really think that personally that there's anything too off about that. No, not at all. And I think we definitely take our ability to get instant connections with our family and friends nowadays. We take it for granted. So this is just how it was back in 1996. That's right. Now, remember, it's late May in Central California. The weather that evening was perfect. And it was actually the perfect precursor to what it would be like in summer. It was warm. And Kristen dressed for it. She threw on a light gray cropped t-shirt, black nylon surfing shorts, and red and white Puma sneakers before being dropped off at 135 Crandall Way, which was an unofficial fraternity house just feet away from the Cal Poly campus. Nothing good ever happens at a fraternity house. I'm just going to say that. Not even an unofficial fraternity house. I'm sorry if that offends anybody, but it's just the case. She was going there for a classmate's birthday party. Her friend Margarita Campos was among the friends who dropped Kristen off at the party, and she later described her last encounter with Kristen to the San Luis Obispo Tribune. And she told them, I can still see her standing there after we dropped her off a little mad, I think, that I wouldn't go with her. And when I read that, I just thought, how horrible for that friend to have that guilt all these years later of, if only I had gone with her, if only I had done this. And it just makes it too real because I don't know how many times I've said goodbye to a friend at a party and said, I'll see you later. And assumed that I would see them later. Yeah, this isn't that abnormal. Again, it sounds a little bit like, gosh, why would her friends let her go alone? Mm -hmm. But first of all, for Kristen, she traveled the world alone before she had even graduated high school to London, to Venezuela. And also how many times I can think of a party where I was going to go, but another friend was like, 
nope, not going to that one because of whatever was happening with them and that group of people that would be there. It's not that abnormal, especially on a college campus when you're young and the social group is large. Right. Yeah. You might end up meeting up with people that are going to be there. Otherwise, you wouldn't want to go. Exactly. So Margarita told Kristen to be careful and she left. And you're right mentioning that she could have run into people she knew at the party because she did. She saw a few people from classes she had and it wasn't exactly like she was there alone by herself. There were people she knew and was comfortable to be around. It's super common, especially when you're living in dorms. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like one big neighborhood in the whole general college area. And it should be noted that Kristen and Margarita were of not too many students that were staying behind for that long weekend in their dorm. It was the end of school. It's kind of the start of summer almost. So it's a good thing. And it makes sense that Margarita was somewhat connected to her decision, but that she also didn't go. But it wasn't that weird because it's just one big neighborhood. You can typically walk to different places when you're on a college campus to nearby apartments that are off campus. It's just it's just not weird. And especially in the 90s, again, when you're not texting people to meet up to just arrive, see who's there and hang out. So just I'm repeating myself, but it's important when you think about the circumstances. It definitely is. And now when we're talking about the party itself, there has been differing reports about Kristen's actions at the party. Some say she was drinking heavily, while others say they didn't see her with a drink at all. However, one thing that was agreed upon was the fact that Kristen seemed to be under the influence of something and had difficulty staying upright. Now, I don't want to make assumptions because nobody truly knows what made Kristen act this way. But over the years, people have speculated that it could have been alcohol or drugs or possibly a roofie. Now, 1.30 a.m. rolls around and Kristen decides it's time to head home. She's partied out and she probably wants to go to sleep. She leaves the party alone only to be found 30 minutes later at 2 a.m., passed out on a neighboring lawn. Cheryl Anderson, who was an acquaintance of Kristen's and Tim Davis, helped Kristen to her feet and decided to walk her back to her nearby dorm when they were joined by another partygoer named Paul Flores. The four Cal Poly students walk toward the dorms together, but Kristen is still having difficulty walking. She's taking breaks every few minutes and it's starting to get even later. I mean, we've all been there with us or a friend of ours who just can't stay on their feet after a party. And no matter how good intentioned you are, it can be a little frustrating. Absolutely. And you don't assume the worst, right? especially when you're looking at them, they're physically there at the moment safe. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about the 90s, it might not have been the first thing that they went to, a roofie, Mm -hmm. right? It just wasn't as cautionary of a tale at the time, although not unknown. So they may have just been like, oh, gosh, you drank too much. Come on, let's get you home. And, you know, you dope, you're lucky we found you here on the lawn kind of thing. Right. And as I said, it's the four students. They're walking back. But at one point, Tim Davis leaves the group because... He lives off campus and he drove to the party. So he says, you know what? This is as far as I'm going to take you guys. Peace out. 
Good night. See you at the next one. Now it's Cheryl, Kristen, and Paul. The three continue to walk towards the dorms at, at the same pace, you know, stopping here and there for Kristen to take breaks. Kristen's arm is around Paul's shoulder, and he's holding her upright with his arm snaked around her waist. When the three come upon the intersection of Perimeter Road and Grand Avenue on the college campus, Cheryl and Paul decide that Paul will continue walking Kristen home since Kristen and Paul are going one way to the Santa Lucia and Murr Hall dorms, and Cheryl needs to go to the other, to the Sierra Madre Hall. And Cheryl later recalls to an, a publication that she asked Paul, are you okay taking Kristen home? Because if not, I will. And she says that even though she said it begrudgingly, she would have taken Kristen home if he wasn't up for it. But he declined and said that no, all is well, that he would handle it. So then there were two, Paul and Kristen. Paul walked Kristen as far as his dormitory, which, as I said, was the Santa Lucia Hall, and then allowed her to walk back to her Muir Hall dorm by herself. And these dorm buildings were about 40 yards away from each other, so it wasn't that far. And it's late, and he's probably tired of stopping every few minutes and just wants to go to sleep. The next morning, Saturday, May 25th, Kristen's roommate wakes up and finds that Kristen never came home. And she knows this to be the case because she was home all night and never saw Kristen return. Additionally, Kristen's clothing, toiletries, cosmetics, medicine, identification, cards, you know, money, everything was left undisturbed in the, in the dorm. So she knew Kristen had not come home. The roommate contacts the police soon after, but is told by the university police department that they were going to wait to file a missing persons report with the local authorities because it was Memorial Day weekend. Students did leave to go home, to go on impromptu trips, and most of them returned to school and were fine. And so they were going to wait. This makes me think about what did Kristen take with her to the party or not, right? Versus right. what was left in the dorm room. That's something that's haunting me a little bit, especially at a maybe off-campus party, but that was walking distance. When I was in college walking from dorms, I tried to take the minimal amount with me. You want to keep it safe in your dorm, and it's a hassle to take a purse with you everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. I I think all I would ever take with me was a lanyard with my ID to get into the dorm building with um, pepper spray on it and then my phone. But like we said, they didn't have phones. Most people at least didn't have cell phones in 1996. Now back to that weekend. When Denise, Kristen's mom, doesn't get her usual Sunday phone call from Kristen, she starts to worry. And when she contacts the authorities they still refuse to take a missing persons report. In fact, they waited four days and probably lost valuable evidence because of it. I'm eye rolling over here yeah. because I feel like we hear this so often in young adult cases. Oh, they're an adult. They're just off having fun, especially when you have a bit of a free spirit. 
Right. With a little bit of wanderlust, like Kristen, maybe they just ignore it and ignore it and ignore it. And you are losing a valuable time. And us in the true crime community, we know after those first 48, it's not good. So why are we waiting? That's a good question. So investigators ended up retracing Kristen's steps and it led them straight to Paul Flores. Now, Paul was known to drink heavily in 1996. And some reports say that he had a tendency to become obnoxious when he was intoxicated. And as a result, he wasn't popular amongst other students. Further underscoring his drinking habits, he had just been arrested for a DUI shortly before this. And there were reports of Paul with a black eye later in the day on May 25th, which which was actually the day after Kristen had gone missing. And when police questioned him about Kristen's whereabouts, he said that he walked to his own dormitory and told Kristen to walk to hers. And that was the last time he saw her. It's not entirely suspicious if you think about them living in different dorms. They got to their nearby dorms. He goes one way, she goes another. You know, it's not an unlikely story. Right. It wouldn't be that typical that he would walk her all the way up to her hall, or at least in my experience in college within 10 years of this. So, you know, it's not too much to be suspicious about or too unlikely. But what was interesting that I also found is that if I'm remembering correctly from the episode of 48 Hours that I saw on this case in season 33, they mentioned that that black eye can be seen in the mugshot from when he was arrested for the DUI. And he had given three different answers to how he got it. Right. It's not looking good, Paul. No, when when you're changing your story three different times, mm-hmm. it does not help investigators look at you in a good light, unfortunately. No, because inconsistencies are the first thing that they look for. So if you're going to lie, you got to stick with it. Now, reminder, we are not saying this means that he has anything to do with Kristen's disappearance, but what we are saying is that in the case of the black eye, he was hiding how he got it for one reason or another. Right. Law enforcement also took notice of some scratches that were on his body at this time as well, which could indicate they were also given inconclusive stories about and could indicate any kind of scuffle that he doesn't want to admit, right? regardless of why. And I just kind of want to go into the stories he told about the way he got his black eye, so... Please, because 48 Hours did not. (laughs) Oh, okay. At one point, he claimed he heard it during a basketball game with a friend, but that friend was like, oh, no, no, no. You had that black eye when you turned up to the game, so don't be lying and Mm. don't make me lie for you. Yeah, don't rope me into this, bro. Thanks. Yeah. And then when he was confronted about it by investigators, he changed his story and said that He hurt his eye while working on a truck at his father's house, and that was how it happened. But then he changed his story again and told a friend that he didn't know how he got it and that he just woke up with it, because that happens. You don't just wake up with a black eye. Why is that the first lie you think of, even if you're going to tell a third different lie? Like, what? Unless he was in a blackout and woke up with the black eye. I don't know. I'm not making excuses for him, but... He could mean more of that. Like, I don't know. I just woke up with it and have no idea how it got there. Meaning like, 
hot, hot, don't know what happened last night kind of thing. You know what I mean? Especially if he was known to drink a little bit. Right. It could be what he may have been insinuating. Even so, that's still just a weak cop out of like, yeah, I just don't know what happened last night. When I woke up, I saw the black eye. Must have been last night. It's like, uh, you kind of remember those things like if you were in a big fight that resulted in a black eye. And it just doesn't look good for him Mm -mm. now or even after because soon after the investigation into Kristen's disappearance, you know, eventually starts, he drops out of Cal Poly. Oh. And I will give him the benefit of the doubt and say that, yes, he had been doing very poorly in school and he was in danger of failing out entirely of the university. So I don't know if this was his proactive approach to leaving before he was kicked out, but the timing of it, it doesn't look good. So he took all of his things out of his dorm in the Santa Lucia Hall, and it happened to be prior to the search that the investigators led. So when investigators eventually decided to investigate, you know, do their job in the Santa Lucia Hall, they brought cadaver dogs with them. And at this point, his room is empty, but his furniture is still there because most dorms, you don't move in the bed. You know what I mean? Like the bed's there. The desk is there. Right. The closet. The big pieces of furniture stay. Yep. That's right. right. It's not yours. Now, during this investigation, the cadaver dogs that were utilized led them to Paul's mattress in what was now his former room. Again, Paul, this does not look good. No. And that's interesting when you think about, okay. It's marking on a bed that stays in the dorm, but the dorm room's devoid of all of Paul's personal items that the dogs may also mark on. So can investigators get to where Paul is now to see if they mark on anything else that's actually in his possession? Well, another thing that's not looking good for Paul is that an earring thought to belong to Kristen was found at the former residence of Paul Flores's mother. Unfortunately, this is 1996 and it wasn't tested. And eventually it was lost entirely. So we don't know if it was Kristen. Wait, so who lost the earring? Paul or law enforcement? It sounds like law enforcement misplaced it or lost it somehow in the evidence locker. Right, that's what I'm picturing is it's in some evidence box that somehow it got smushed. And an earring's not very big. Let's remember whether it's a stud or a hoop, it's they're not that big. No. So I it is a small item, easy to lose, but wow, 1996, lose an earring of a missing person. Are we kidding? Well, and just this whole investigation has already been botched. I mean, they took four days <sighs> to even start it. They lose critical evidence. I mean, my God. It's a mess. Do they want to solve this? I feel like we do say this a lot in many of our episodes, and it's unfortunate, but this one, it is a mess. And at this point, we've got a missing person who lots of time has been lost on trying to find them, and we've got one suspect that we haven't quite pinned down yet, Right, but maybe looks good. But what would a disappearance be without a red herring? Because during their investigation into Paul, 
police investigators end up having to look into Scott Peterson of Lacey and Scott Peterson fame. Oh my gosh. Modesto is not that close, people. It's close to Stockton, but it's not close. That's close to slow. Apparently, there were a lot of rumors in the media that Scott Peterson had something to do with Kristen's disappearance, you know, due to the simultaneous attendance at Cal Poly. That's where Lacey went. But police soon squashed those um, rumors and it was tossed aside. So I just, I had to throw that in because, of course, Scott Peterson made his way into this story as well. Right. And they're doing the most they can when they only have one suspect. If and when they clear that suspect, if they have not committed the crime, then they're starting at square one. If they don't think about these other leads. And from what I'm hearing now, the Petersons, Lacey and Scott, also had connections up north in that area. They're from Modesto, if I'm remembering correctly. That's not far from Stockton. And then Kristen and Lacey both had ties down in Slow. then. So I may have been a little bit off a few moments ago, but still, what a reach. What a reach of a red herring. But I mean, good on them for trying, but still, I mean, yeah, what a distraction. That was a huge case. It still is. Right. It just shows like what a waste of resources for Mm -hmm. this case to have to look into that, though. You know what I mean? And how often do we hear that is it depleted our resources. So just because they're looking into one thing, you think they're still looking into the other. No, it literally means that that halts and turns the case a lot of times because as cases go on, they actually tend to lose more and more resources. So then when you add a curve, then you've got less resources that are more distracted. It's not always a great thing. No, it's not. And one of the positive takeaways about the slow response by the campus police and the local authorities is that it resulted in the Kristen Smart Campus Security Act, which was written and sponsored by State Senator Mike Thompson. And it eventually passed 61 to zero by the California State Legislature. And it was signed into effect by then Governor Pete Wilson on August 19th, 1998. So they unfortunately messed up Kristen's case, but they knew that they messed up and they wanted to make sure that they weren't going to mess up in future cases. And it went into effect January 1st, 1999, and it required all public colleges and publicly funded educational institutions to have their security services make agreements with local police departments about reporting cases involving or possibly involving violence against students, and that included missing students as well. Well, it sounds like, at the very least, Kristen's will be hopefully the last that has issues due to too much time between gone missing and the reports being made, investigations starting, that sort of thing. Where is her family with the case now? What's going on? Her family's really been through the ringer these past few decades. First of all, they've never given up. There's actually a billboard that's still up today in 2021 that has Kristen Smart's picture on it. And it has a description of the $75,000 award for any information regarding her case because they haven't gotten anything. There's been various searches for her remains and other evidence, but nothing's been found. They've used cadaver dogs. Uh, They've literally 
dug up private properties and nothing's been found. And so on May 25th, 2002, which was the sixth anniversary of her disappearance, Kristen was actually declared legally dead. But that didn't stop her parents from fighting for justice or looking for answers. Right. And this billboard, by the way, it's like a bright yellow background. You can't miss it. You can't miss it at all. And it should be stated that when we were talking about the arrest of Paul Flores and mentioned it as the next day after Kristen's disappearance, that's because we're putting into the picture that Kristen went missing in like the earlier morning hours, right? She left the party at 1.30, right. whereas Paul right. Flores was arrested far later on, but very close to proximity. So yes, the anniversary is indeed May 25th. Right, correct. And like I said, her parents, Denise and Stan Smart, they're not stopping. They actually took out a civil case of wrongful death against Paul Flores and they were represented by James R. Murphy on a pro bono basis. And unfortunately, Paul denied any involvement. And the Flores family, in fact, actually retaliated with their own civil suit against the Smart family for emotional distress. This just adds to the mess that we've been saying this case has been the whole time. You've got one family who's poked and prodded, and maybe there's a suspect and we're trying to make it work and circumstantially doesn't look Wonderful. And then we've got a missing 19-year-old who has yet to be found 25 years ago. Exactly. But the Smart family isn't the only one searching for answers. There's actually a podcaster named Chris Lambert, and he has a series of eight episodes of a podcast called In Your Own Backyard. And this podcast recounts in detail Kristen's probable abduction and subsequent death at the hands of another student on the campus over 25 years ago. And I really think that brought her story into the forefront and has helped us get to where we are today in 2021, which is recently Paul Flores has been arrested. Now, he's been arrested for being in possession of firearms as a felon, and which is a felony in itself. Because after Kristen's disappearance, he did go on to get another two DUIs. But they've also used this as a time to look further into his properties and see if there's any evidence that they have, may have missed 20 plus years ago. It should be noted that this property is about four to five hours away from where whatever happened to Kristen that night happened. Thank you for bringing that up because the search warrants that were executed, they were done for four different locations. So two in San Luis Obispo, which is where we know she disappeared from. One in Washington state. So that's kind of random, but okay. And a home in LA County. Whoa. That brings me to March 15th, 2021, which was literally, I don't know, last week. A search warrant was issued to search Ruben Flores' home. And now Ruben is Paul's dad. And they used cadaver dogs and ground-penetrating radar. And their hopes was to find anything relating to Kristen's disappearance, whether that be buried remains or um, any little piece of evidence that they could find. 
the case is still so active and so is the heartbreak and the heartache and disappointment that Kristen Smart's family goes through every day. You know, they they don't know where their daughter is 25 years later. They don't know what happened to her. She just seemingly disappeared into thin air. Right. They have no answers. Sometimes with these missing persons cases, it's kind of important to remember, too, that there's a lot of information that they don't release on purpose. Now, most of us know this. I'm saying it for the sake of this episode. So, of course, to us at this moment, she did seemingly disappear into thin air because we don't have a lot of information about really anything that they found besides an earring that has since been lost and her items that were in her dorm. And that that's kind of it. We don't know anything else, although there most likely is other information, especially as to why they keep going to search the properties of Paul Flores and the Flores family. But until we find her body or have more closure, we probably won't come even close to knowing exactly what happened that night. No, we won't. And it sucks. It really sucks for everyone involved because... If Paul Flores didn't do it, him and his family have been subjected to 25 years of lawsuits, um, police um, search and seizures. I mean, their life could never be the same, ever. I mean, it's followed them out of San Luis Obispo into Washington State and L.A. County and, you know, neighboring cities. And for Kristen's family, like I said, they don't know where their daughter is. Her parents wrote that they live for the day when they get to lay her to rest in the presence of their family and all who loved and fought for her. And they continued on by saying that they've been praying for her return for longer than they were able to hold her in their arms. And I think that last part really drives it home why we're telling this story. Yes. Oh my gosh. This is a story that does not have justice. This is a story that needs answers. And this is a story that needs to continue being told until we get them. At least her family gets them. So if you or anyone you know has any information regarding the disappearance of Kristen Smart, call the authorities. Let them know. Be anonymous. It doesn't matter how you do it. Just get it out there. So that's where we'll leave it today. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries pod on Instagram at the Murder Diaries pod at gmail.com and the Murder Diaries podcast.com merch coming soon. April 5th. So mark your calendars. You know what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Go rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really helps us keep the good content flowing. That's right. And until then, better safe than dead. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.